Today's guest on the My Climate Journey podcast is Michael Thomas, whom you may know from Twitter as at Curious underscore founder. Recently, over the last nine months or so, Michael's emerged with a unique voice and style in independent investigative climate journalism. One of his earliest pieces saw him immerse himself in dozens of Facebook groups organized around opposing local clean energy legislation. He used that exploration to pen a series of articles around climate misinformation, how it's organized, how these groups are funded, how they operate, and more, all of which can be found via his newsletter at distilled.earth. And he's recently started exploring topics in video format as well via the YouTube channel at distilled-earth, which I highly recommend you check out. In addition to these recent pieces, Michael started a wire cutter-like guide to help people navigate home electrification called Carbon Switch, which he recently donated to Rewiring America. And he's the co-founder of a tech-focused content marketing agency called Campfire Labs, which gives 50% of its annual profits to climate action, including a sizable gift in the past to climate changemakers, a climate action platform that I co-founded in 2020 together with a number of other MCJers. And I'm, of course, very grateful to Michael for that. So to start us off... I wanted to get to know Michael better. I was interested to learn what motivated him to start his investigative journalism efforts in the first place and what kickstarted his own climate journey. We chat a bit about that and then dive into some of the specifics of the stories he's written and the investigations he's done. And then we chat some about what it's like to be an outsider and independent content creator. And lastly, he shares his advice for anyone listening who's feeling a similar itch to get started with something that they might not have prior experience in. And spoiler alert, it involves a strong willingness to embrace and learn from failure. I consider MCJ an outsider climate initiative to some extent. None of us at MCJ had any prior climate experience before jumping in head first. And yet what's exciting about this moment in time is seeing more and more and more people like Michael being called into action. As long as you're willing to dive in and do the work, there's so much impactful work to be done in the climate space. And every day, there are more and more and more of us. And so with that, let's get going. But before we dive in, I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Lu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. Michael, welcome to the show. Hey, Cody. Thanks for having me. So most people, you know, I think at this point probably know you online as, you know, at Curious Founder on Twitter uh, with an underscore in there, I think, uh, you know, guy who posts these really provocative tweet threads about all sorts of different topics. Um, but you now run your own newsletter. You have you, you now have your own YouTube channel. Um, so the first question I have for you is, how did this come about? Like, did you set out to be a journalist? Has that kind of been your, your MO uh, in, in life or is this a new thing for you? Um, some parts of it are are new and um, other parts have honestly been uh, something I've been interested in all my life. So uh, growing up as a kid, uh, my heroes were uh, all sports broadcasters and sports journalists. I grew up uh, reading the Denver Post sports section every 
morning and watching Sports Center every night and uh, wanted to be a, a sports broadcaster when I was older. Which who 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 were the who were the specific uh, the specific so, idols for you? Uh, Stuart Scott was okay. was one of my heroes for Rest sure. Rest in peace. Yeah, R.I.P. Uh, and uh, and then I I joined school newspaper. So you know have been interested in this stuff from like a really early age. Um, but then became less interested in sports as I got older and um, have really shifted to being interested in all kinds of things. But I think that for me, the core thing that's always been true in my career is that I just kind of follow my curiosity, uh, hence hence the Twitter handle, I guess. Uh, and so I've just kind of followed my nose, uh, try to learn as much as I can. And then I really enjoy sharing what I learn with people. And, uh, and so that's evolved over the years in terms of formats. Um, I started out just blogging um, back in 2015 and then wrote for some magazines like uh, The Atlantic and Fast Company uh, and then started to dabble in video and YouTube. And um, and so it's uh, it's kind of evolved over the years. It's hard to become just casually writing for The Atlantic and Fast Company, Michael. I think you're selling yourself a little short there. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you earned your stripes there, obviously, because you do good work. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it was especially when I was just getting started, it was a lot of work um, to just learn the style. And I didn't go to journalism school, dropped out of college after my first year. So a lot of it is um, just kind of self-taught and, and learning on the internet and on YouTube. Um, and uh, and so with uh, regard to like writing for publications, I, I just kind of learned the format and learned what a successful article looks like and tried to repeat that and write every day and um, and just put in the hours to to grow. And then at some point, you you obviously have married that with a, an interest or a curiosity, I guess, maybe toward climate change, toward, you know, how the world is dealing with climate change, how the world is, in some cases, fighting uh, efforts to deal with climate change. Um, where did that part of your of your interest set come from? So initially, I became interested in uh, climate as a, a real problem. Um, actually, in a sort of uh, strange experience, um, I was volunteering at a refugee camp for about three months uh, in the summer of 2017. And I was talking to an NGO worker uh, at, I think, um, Red Cross, and uh, they were telling me how the refugee crisis is going to get much worse over time. Uh, because of climate change. And I just never really thought of that. They described all of these places where climate change will really force people out of their homes. Uh, they tend to be the most marginalized communities in the world. And that's already causing a, a lot of migration and will cause even more. Um, and so I really started to look at it from the uh, perspective of uh, refugees and, um, and all of the challenges that would come as we go into the next few decades, as the world warms up. And then in 2018, I think like a lot of people that felt like this year where it was hard to look at anything but climate change. There was of course the the major um, 1.5 C report from the IPCC. Um, there was all of the activism all around the world, young people like Greta uh, protesting. And so I just started to read more about it. I read uh, I think David Roberts' summary of the IPCC report in Vox, and I read a lot of other analysis, and 
um, just started to learn more and realize that this was really going to be the problem of our time and uh, and that I, I might have some way to contribute and uh, could hopefully educate people on what I was learning. Well, two big takeaways for me there. One is I, I continue to hold the opinion that it's these flashpoint moments that encourage people to jump into caring about climate change. Um, you know, you are one of many people who cite the 2017 IPCC report. My partner, Jason, uh, the creator of My Climate Journey podcast, like that also was his flashpoint moment. Um, there's quite a few other people who've come on the pod and mentioned Orange Day in San Francisco, that day in the fall of 2020 when the sky turned orange. That was another big flashpoint moment. So it's it's interesting to kind of look at these catalyzing moments as points of inspiration. And then the second observation I have is I think you're one of the best uh, investigative reporters out there with respect to climate because you dive into topics that people just are turning a blind eye toward, frankly. Um, one of the other people I hold as one of the best investigative reporters in climate is Abram Lusgarden from ProPublica, um, who I first discovered in a piece he wrote for New York Times Magazine about climate migration. So kind of a full loop there for you uh, from an interest perspective, which is also interesting to see that be a topic that pulled you into the movement in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I think those flashpoints are so important. And I think my experience in uh, talking to friends and, and also interviewing people is that they are often like a personal experience. So Orange Day that you mentioned and uh, SF, um, that's a really personal experience to see that the world is changing and, uh, and it can be scary. Um, and and then I, I had my own kind of surge in uh, interest or, or motivation um, in 2020 when there were all the wildfires in Colorado where I live. And um, and I think that it makes sense people, people start to experience the impacts of climate change and, and are motivated uh, to do something. And so when you and I first met, you were going down the deep end on home electrification. In fact, I think we first met because I was exploring a retrofit of my home with a heat pump and everything, which I, a project I did end up doing and frankly, I'm, I'm still paying for it today. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you, uh, I, I think I had found a website. I mean, I know you and I, I know your, your partner, uh, and so, you know, I can't remember if she introduced us or if I literally found your website online and submitted something. And then I think we connected the dots thereafter. Oh, either that or you replied to me on Twitter. I don't remember, but it was it felt serendipitous and random. And then, you know, that was your area of expertise at the time was, you know, home electrification, heat pumps. You were trying to compare data of different projects. Um, so how did that area become a focus for you? Yeah, so um, that that year that I described in, in 2020 when there was all these wildfires uh, in Colorado and then uh, we're at really the peak of the pandemic and stuck inside. Um, I was just spending a lot of time online uh, on, on my computer at home. And um, I think I stumbled across, maybe it was like an Our World in Data page on the largest sources of emissions in the world and in the United States. and was shocked to learn that uh, about 20% of emissions in the US uh, come from our homes. If you take all the fossil fuels that we burn directly and then also indirectly um, in, in terms of the electricity that we use. Um, and the more that I learned about the causes of emissions and energy use within our homes, and then also the potential solutions like heat pumps, uh, I realized that it, it just 
seem like a opportunity where educating people, raising awareness and, and making the process of uh, decarbonizing a home uh, would be impactful. So I started to Google, you know, things like heat pumps and furnaces and all of these things I think someone would, would Google in their buyer's journey and, and getting a new furnace or a new water heater and realize that there was so much misleading or just outright false information out there. There was uh, plumbers or contractors or gas companies saying a natural gas furnace is the most environmentally friendly thing that you can do, not a heat pump. And um, and then I also learned from just looking at some Google search data that there was millions of people searching for this stuff every year. And, um, and so I came up with the idea of uh, building something like a wire cutter for climate, specifically focused on electrification. Um, so the idea being that all these people are searching for best air conditioner, and they might not know that they're about to replace a really inefficient air conditioner and have an opportunity to replace it with a heat pump that could also heat their home and hopefully save them a lot of energy and uh, and maybe money over the next 10 or 15 years. Um, and so kind of set out to to build that in 2020 and um, and worked on that through last summer. And that that is what evolved eventually into Carbon Switch. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And so started as an idea of like, we can actually help guide you through an installation uh, sort of um, plan, but then it sounds like it kind of quickly evolved into more of an editorial product around just writing reviews and helping people make choices on their own. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. So um, basically guides to heat pumps, um, heat pump hot water heaters, uh, LED lights, um, insulation, all of these things where there's really big opportunities to save energy and replace a dirty fossil fuel appliance with a clean electric uh, alternative. And, um, and so wrote both reviews of specific models, because that's often a challenge when people are searching for this stuff, uh, trying to figure out what's the best cold climate heat pump, for example, and then also guides, um, trying to figure out what questions you should be asking, how you should think about uh, the trade-off of higher upfront costs versus better energy efficiency. And then the work you did there, if, if, if I connect the dots correctly, uh, sort of then led you into obviously looking at induction stoves and comparing those to gas stoves and then kind of pulled you into the whole culture war that, that took off in that area uh, a few months ago uh, as well. Um, anything that, that, was, that, that you kind of took away from that experience or that you want to share? Sure. So uh, while I was uh, working on some of these guides, I started to look at induction and, and gas stoves. And um, I'd heard uh, from a lot of people that gas stoves don't really use that much energy. If you look at it compared to the rest of the energy use in a home, um, it's a, a small fraction. Um, they're responsible for a very small amount of emissions in total. But if you look at the public health uh, risks and uh, just the higher rates of respiratory illness, uh, there's really reason to think that we shouldn't be having gas stoves in our kitchens. So I was a little bit skeptical of this. Um, when I read it, I, I just wasn't sure how big of the of the risk it'd be. And um, again, kind of approached it from the perspective of a climate hawk looking at just emissions. Uh, so I bought a bunch of uh, air quality monitors and put them all throughout our home. And then we used our gas stove for a month or two. And I just measured the nitrogen dioxide levels, which is really the pollutant that uh, causes respiratory illness. 
And then I went and took that to an environmental epidemiologist, uh, Josiah Kepler, uh, who uh, crunches these numbers for a living and much smarter on the topic than me and asked him to take a look. And he told me that they were like, uh, you know, five times higher than the WHO guidelines of what's safe. And he helped point me towards different studies and academic research. And so I went very deep down the rabbit hole. I think read like 30 studies on uh, the health Im impacts of gas stoves. And there was often, you know, studies that cited other studies. And so I had to just go really deep and um, came away with it uh, just believing something very different than I did at the beginning. I went in skeptical and came out thinking, uh, these are like cigarettes, you know, they are in our homes, the companies that sell them and the gas companies that sell the fuel know and have known since the 70s or 80s, if you look at public documents, that these things really harm our health and are causing a huge number of uh, asthma cases. I think the latest uh, data is something like 12% of childhood asthma in this country. Um, so hundreds of thousands of children that are getting sick because we have gas stoves uh, that companies know are harmful and are actively lobbying to make sure that um, policymakers can't actually uh, ban them or at least create better alternative or, or uh, incentives for better alternatives like an induction stove or electric stove. And it feels like, you know, and we're going to get into some of the reporting you've done in, in more depth. Obviously, you just touched on one of one of the pieces that you did. Um, but but it feels like this common theme of your reporting is how it ties to local policy action. Um, and, you know, I want to spend a bunch of time on that. Um, before I do, I want to hit one more topic, which I'm trying to, I think, up front establish what I see as sort of your, your bona fides as like a climate renaissance man to some extent, Michael. Um, so the, uh, you know, the, the other area that you've dived deep on, I think over the last, you know, five or six years is you run a content marketing agency called Campfire Labs. And as far as I understand, historically, that didn't have anything to do with climate. That was, you know, you paying the bills. Um, but I think over the last year or so, you've done some customer discovery work with climate tech companies on what they might need help from, from a content marketing perspective. Um, I'm curious what you learned, what you heard. Yeah. So um, we have just begun this. Um, this is a, a company that I started uh, back in 2018. Um, and um, we started out just doing content marketing for tech companies uh, like Stripe and Dropbox and Notion and um, really no climate angle at all. And one of the things I did when I set up the company is pledge 50% of the profits to climate action and nonprofit advocacy groups. Um, and so that was kind of part of how I started to get into climate. Um, and we've been able to give like late, latest numbers some you know, mid hundreds of thousands of dollars to climate nonprofits, including climate change makers, which I know you helped start. Super and, grateful for your contribution there, obviously. Yeah. And uh, and then more recently, we realized that we should be working with some of these growing climate tech companies. In 2018, there wasn't really as big of a market and it didn't seem like it made as much sense. But uh, as you know, the market has completely changed. It's grown like crazy. And so we're just beginning to have some of those customer discovery conversations. I think we've had a dozen so far. Um, I'm operationally not very involved in in the business day to day. Um, so our general manager, Hal, has been having some of those conversations. And um, I think the thing that he said that uh, stood out to me is that 
everyone just agrees that telling the story is so important that they often have a technology that solves a very specific problem and it's hard to raise awareness for it or get people to understand why it's so important. Like you think about something like a heat pump. Uh, it, you know, if you tell someone uh, I'm working on a heat pump technology, they kind of look at you with glazed eyes. It's uh, a bit boring. You know, we're talking about HVAC and plumbing and stuff that's in people's uh, boiler room. Uh, they don't think about it that much. But uh, a lot of people say that um, the most impactful thing they can do on the marketing side is to try to just tell that story and and put it in a larger context. So we're hoping to be able to do that with some companies and um, excited to learn what kind of problems they have and and where we can plug in. Last question for you, and then and then we'll dive into some of the explorations you've done on the investigative journalism side. Is Carbon Switch again the the publication you started to help people make? Uh, smart, climate-friendly choices in their home um, around home electrification and whatnot. Uh, you announced, I think, at the end of last year that you were acquired by Rewiring America. Uh, so w- what has that been like? Yeah, so last fall, um, I started to have some conversations with Rewiring America and and realized there was a great opportunity to partner. Um, but just kind of some context, uh, I started in 2020 and wasn't really sure at the beginning whether I wanted it to be a for-profit or a non-profit. I knew going in that the media landscape is pretty terrible. The business models and media are really bad. Um, but I was already giving a lot to non-profits and saw how, how scarce those dollars are and how hard it is to raise money as a non-profit. Um, and I didn't really wanna like take up more resources in the ecosystem. So started it uh, hoping to create a, a for-profit um, that could kind of fund itself, produce research, and uh, and quickly learn that the business model of a, a site like Carbon Switch is incredibly challenging. It's difficult for a number of reasons. One of them is that if you look at a typical site like a wire cutter or this kind of affiliate model, uh, it relies on the Amazon ecosystem or e-commerce and people don't order a heat pump uh, online and, and get it shipped to their door and and it's done, uh, they have to work with a contractor and an installer. It's a pretty complicated process. And then the second challenge is that um, there's a real supply shortage of contractors and plumbers and installers and electricians. And so they're not out there spending money on marketing, trying to drum up demand. Uh, They're just trying to keep up with all the projects that uh, that are coming their way. And so there's not really a customer in terms of someone who will pay for uh, sending someone uh, to a heat pump installer. So um, yeah, I, I kind of tried a lot of different things on the business model side. And then by last summer realized that it wasn't really gonna make sense for it to be a standalone entity. And I'd met the folks at Rewiring America about two years before when they were just starting Rewiring and um, really liked the team, really liked the vision. Um, and and really respected what they'd done to raise awareness for the Electrify Everything movement. And um, so I emailed Ari, the executive director, uh, one morning, said, hey, I'm thinking about either selling uh, Carbon Switch or uh, potentially shutting it down. Wanted to see if there's some opportunity to partner with you all. Um, I'd be interested in donating everything and then helping you all incorporate that into all the work that you're doing. Uh, I got an email back, I think five minutes later, he said, uh, Absolutely, we'd love to talk. And we were on the phone, I think, 30 minutes later. And um, it, it's been a good partnership. And um, I'm excited to see what they do with kind of expanding it. 
I mean, so so chock full of, of different initiatives that you've been working on. And then, and so if I understand it, then, you know, the, the specific sort of evergreen content around home electrification will continue to live on at Carbon Switch. I don't know if you're still contributing, you know, pieces to that going forward. And then now you're primarily focused on, I mean, you've got Campfire Labs that's kind of off and running. It sounds like you're not necessarily day to day. Um, it seems like going forward, your primary focus is... Um, around your new newsletter, distilled.earth, um, and obviously now starting to build out some video content around that too. Is that, would you call that 90% of your, your time at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, that's where my main focus has been um, for the last six months or so. And what gave you the confidence to say, all right, I'm going to go all in. I, I, I figured out I can I can be a credible journalist, uh, you know, covering uh, cl climate topics. Well, I think like so many things in my career, there wasn't a big master plan um, or uh, a big vision uh, per se. I I just kind of uh, followed my curiosity and and started to uh, write stuff and publish stuff. So um, last fall, I had taken a few months off after um, donating Carbon Switch to Rewiring America and thought I was going to take like a couple weeks off it ended up extending. I, I just couldn't really figure out what I was going to work on next, but I was reading and learning a lot about specifically uh, opposition to clean energy. And so at one point I was just kind of frustrated that I hadn't figured out what I was going to work on and was feeling kind of stuck and decided to just set a challenge of like writing one thing on Twitter about what I was learning about every week um, and see where that led. So um, I started that in October. And I think maybe my second or, or third thread that I wrote was uh, one of these viral threads on uh, some of the Facebook groups um, and, and NIMBY groups that are opposing clean energy projects. So for that project, I, I'd heard that there were a lot of people opposing solar projects and, and wind projects across the country. Um, wasn't really sure how big of an issue it was but I read in a lot of articles that they would organize on Facebook. And so I went onto Facebook, started to join some of these groups, learned that there was a lot of them uh, and joined, I think 40 in the end. Uh, I, I was and, gonna say, you, you mentioned this, like, oh, I just casually wrote a Twitter thread on this, but no, you like, you immersed yourself in uh, in understanding the point of view of of the the people who are you know really push leading these opposition movements, um, yeah, and so you know it's it's an immersion that is much more than maybe the, the casual person might do if they were curious. Uh, from, I'm just going to go out and say like you maybe jumped two levels deeper into the into the morass, um, which is amazing. Um, and 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 it's all right there. It's kind of so obvious, and yet you had the the foresight to to jump in and go learn about it. And obviously, people were interested to hear what you learned. Yeah, totally. And that's I think kind of a theme with a lot of my work is that I I have a hard time not going really deep down the rabbit hole and um, do have to at times pull myself out um, when I'm like a month deep on a on a topic that uh, I've maybe uh, spent too much time on. But um, but yeah, I, I started to join these groups and and just saw the some of the craziest. Michael, posts. I have to ask, no one lets you play fantasy baseball, right? Because it just seems like you would be, uh, that would be not good for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I honestly, when I was younger, I, I was as obsessive about some of the stuff with sports. Uh, and fortunately I'm, I don't watch sports anymore and, uh, and put some of that energy 
in ways that maybe make some money instead of uh, watching sports all day, which I probably would do. Um, and so then what did you learn? So I think the the main thing that I learned is that there's a lot of misinformation that's spreading about clean energy in these groups. So I, uh, in, in my story, describe what I call the wind turbine on fire post. So uh, I think I saw dozens of pictures or videos of wind turbines that were on fire, spinning, you know, putting off a lot of smoke and sparks. And um, and so I looked it up and was like, how common is this? And it turns out they're recycling a lot of very rare incidents and posting them as if they were happening every day and very common. But in fact, out of something like 40,000 wind turbines, uh, according to the most recent research, only 40 of them have ever had some kind of maintenance failure like that. And it seems like, I mean, it, it, it makes sense as something for someone to think they should be afraid of because we hear about, you know, EV batteries blowing up and we hear about cell phone batteries blowing up. So it's like, oh, this is another big electric thing that actually is really dangerous that no one's talking about, right? Totally. And, and it's really effective in terms of what is sort of like a propaganda by some of the groups that I can get into that are funding some of this misinformation um, because it's really emotional and it's really scary. Like if you did believe that wind turbines were just catching fire every day, you wouldn't want one going up in your community. Uh, you'd fight for it because you wanna protect your family and your community and your kids. And, and so I think that can be really effective. And then another one that kind of a common theme was the negative health impacts of wind turbines. So there's a kind of now infamous uh, study on wind turbine syndrome that says that wind turbines will give you cancer and they'll make you nauseous and they'll give you headaches. And it was put out in, I think, 2006. Um, I don't believe it was peer reviewed. And it's been debunked in 20 papers since then. It's just so abundantly clear from the data that wind turbines do not make you sick, um, except for one scenario, which is, uh, I think, tragic, which is if you believe in wind turbine syndrome, uh, if you've read a lot of this stuff, so let's say you're in one of these Facebook groups, then it will actually cause some of those negative health effects, that there's kind of like a placebo effect, that you will get headaches and you will maybe feel nauseous. Um, and so uh, this misinformation is actually creating a lot of harm and negative health impacts, uh, which when I read that, I was, uh, I was just mind blown that that, that ha can happen. Um, it's a self-induced anxiety that creates, that creates an actual physical reaction. Totally. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So, um, so I, I learned that there are all these groups, there are more of them every year and um, what quickly, or what, what starts as just some Facebook posts and just a Facebook group uh, can lead to incredibly angry uh, town hall meetings and county meetings and people flood from these Facebook groups into some of these county meetings where they're trying to approve a project. And um, in some subsequent reporting, I interviewed county commissioners or I interviewed people who are in these communities and they say, you know, before wind projects or solar projects, it was like there'd be t 10 people at a meeting and it was talking about sewage or talking about the water in the town and they had to figure out some technical thing. Um, and everyone got along really well. They had some disagreements, but they always made up. And since there's been some of this misinformation, there uh, are just these really intense town meetings and county meetings and people are yelling at each other and screaming and 
putting out threats on county commissioners. And so it creates an atmosphere that divides communities. And then it also has led to hundreds of communities just outright banning wind and solar projects in the entire county. Um, so just blocking off that area for any clean energy development at a time when we have limited transmission and only so many places that we can build this stuff. And then you did a separate piece on sort of someone who, t- to some extent, has been uh, championing the strategies that these local groups use. Um, a, a guy named uh, John Draws, as I, as, I, as I understood from your from your piece. Um, and and one of the big takeaways I, I had from from reading that was, um, and you, you know, please elaborate on it and ex- explain kind of what, what you learned there. Um, there's a, there's a, a really good book on negotiation by a, a former hostage negotiator called Never Split the Difference. Um, and in that book, one of the tactics that um, that th- this person recommends is that you always should anchor extremely, meaning. If you're required for whatever reason to throw out a first number or to reply to a counteroffer, don't split the difference. Don't just kind of give a meek, you know, oh, let's let's I'll go by, you know, a little bit below or above the number you gave me. You go extreme. Um, and so that it gives a, the, the other party a lot of room to kind of navigate. And that's what I was hearing in the the strategies that you found, you know, these these local groups were doing, which is they basically are taking a complete non-compromise position. Um, explain a little bit about what, what you've learned here about this this guy, John Draws. Yeah, I, I hadn't read that book, but that's fascinating because that's the exact strategy that um, that these groups use. So after I joined all these Facebook groups, I thought about how I kept seeing this one person's name mentioned a lot, this guy, John Draws. And um, people kind of talked about him as if he's like the Yoda of clean energy opposition or or something. And so I started to look into him and um, I started to interview some people in the clean energy world. And they'd say, have you uh, looked into John Draws? Um, So he has this this big name uh, in the world of clean energy development and opposition. Um, so looked into his story and, um, and started to just kind of understand some of the tactics that he's had over the last 10 years and learned that in 2011 or 12, I've forgotten the exact year, he was a real estate developer and, uh, investor, um, in Carolinas and he decided to produce this 110 page PowerPoint presentation on sea level rise, because at the time, uh, the legislature where he lived was debating a law that was going to act on sea level rise and invest some money in adapting to it. And um, so he created this presentation and presented himself as a physicist and climate expert and started to set up these meetings with legislators and was so effective at, at kind of presenting himself as an expert that the Washington Post cited him as a local physicist in this article about sea level rise um, and and this bill that was being debated. And he got an ear with a lot of Republican legislators and convinced them of a lot of uh, either misleading data or outright false things that sea level wasn't going to rise, that climate change wasn't happening. Um, I think in a subsequent presentation, he started to turn his uh, attention towards wind energy. and describe wind energy as this scam and something that's so expensive and is bad for people's health and all of these reasons why we shouldn't be building wind. Um, and 
and then started to ally with a lot of groups across the country. And what turned or what started as just one individual who put together some of his own research and presented it quickly became a playbook. And he started to teach uh, what are sometimes referred to as wind warriors uh, all across the country, uh, clean energy opposition activists to oppose projects and really developed a playbook on his site um, that is in a lot of PDFs. And um, so again, kind of went down the rabbit hole, read through all of his uh, PDFs and uh, read through everything that he published. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. Did, did you glean any motivation from this of like, why this guy, why he cares so much? No, not really. And okay. every time he's been interviewed, he says, this story isn't about me. And um, and he, yeah, he, he doesn't want to talk to journalists or he, when he does, he doesn't tell their story. And um, so I, I felt like I couldn't really get that from him. Okay. Yeah, so uh, I think he's been incredibly, incredibly effective. And, um, you know, we're on the heels of a a, a big revelation in the uh, sort of conservative right-wing news media uh, this week with Tucker Carlson uh, being let go from Fox News. And I'm curious, I haven't seen um, a lot of reporting on how climate is talked about in cable news. And I'm interested if you've done much work. I don't, I don't know that you've written a bunch on this yourself, but I'm curious if you've kind of dived in yet on the intersections of these sort of Facebook groups and how cable news, you know, either inspires them and or serves as amplification of their messages. Yeah. So I think if we look at Fox News in particular, um, they cover it in about the worst way you could desire if you want climate action. Um, They often will interview people who are not climate scientists on the actual science of climate change. Um, So they will bring in very frequently uh, someone who claims that he was a co-founder of Greenpeace. I've forgotten his name exactly, Um, but um, I was looking into him a while back and um, learned that he was at Greenpeace for a bit, but Greenpeace says that they he was not a co-founder. And so they kind of uh, have, have put him at a distance. And he goes on and basically Fox News puts up the title and says, you know, co- co-founder of Greenpeace says climate change, not a problem or something. And I think that's a pretty common shtick that 
Fox News does and that some right-wing media will do. They do this with Michael Schellenberger too, who I think has been incredibly uh, damaging to climate discourse and often spreads uh, misleading or, or, or false information um, where they'll have him on say, he was time environmental person of the year in in some year, but now he thinks that clean energy is bad. And now he thinks climate change isn't that big of a deal. And so they try to kind of create a false sense of authority when what they're not doing or they're choosing to not do is avoid talking to real climate scientists. And they often talk about the costs of climate change and they put these figures up without context on how much it's going to cost without talking about any of the benefits or how much money people will save or how much it'll do for the economy. Um, so it's a it's a really insidious thing. And uh, the result is that when you look at the research, people who watch Fox News are something like twice as likely to um, believe that climate change isn't real as a average news viewer. And, you know, to some extent, I understand the well, I don't understand it, but the, you know, sort of the the motivations of, uh, you know, promoting fossil fuel as like, hey, you know, fossil fuels are are responsible for creating jobs locally. Um, you know, these are small businesses that generations in, in America have grown up sort of building their, their families, businesses around. Um, and, you know, promotion of that, to some extent, I can understand where that angle comes from. Um, it's the sort of tearing down of the growth of renewables that seems like, particularly in the social media world, the Facebook world that you went into, um, that, that is, is the part that I can't, I don't, I can't get my head around because I don't, they're not even polar opposites necessarily. Um, but maybe, maybe, they, maybe they are, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that is frustrating to me as well is that they just often say things that aren't true about clean energy and renewables. So a recent example and something that I reported on um, is looking at the uh, whale and offshore wind issue. I don't know how much you've heard about this, um, but if you've been reading the news or, or watching cable news in the last six months or so, this has started to come up and be much more popular and covered more where um, the if you took it from Fox News, you'd believe that as the US is building all of this offshore wind um, and growing their total capacity, uh, it's leading to all of these whale strandings and a large number of whales are washing up on the beaches. And it's true that a lot of whales have been washing up in the last year or so. Um, and NOAA has been tracking this and has been putting out data and it's very abnormal. But if you talk to ocean scientists, again, you talk to experts, they say there's zero evidence that it's the offshore wind turbines uh, and construction that is killing uh, these whales. Um, and if you go back to where this narrative started in the first place, it is a right-wing conservative group in the Koch network um, that has received a ton of money from fossil fuel interests, including um, a fossil fuel trade group that gets money from Exxon and all the big uh, oil and gas companies. And this guy, David Stevenson, has been spreading misinformation for the last two years and creating a campaign that is trying to convince people that all of this offshore wind construction is going to lead to uh, huge environmental damage in the ocean, kill all these whales. Um, and so that work sort of 
perfectly timed with this rise of uh, whale strandings that was very alarming. You know, you're walking along the beach and you see a massive whale and, you know, the media is covering this. And so a group that he started um, by sending 30,000 letters to people all along the uh, East Coast where some of these offshore wind farms were going to be built. Um, he sent them a letter, said he was just an, a local resident, which wasn't true, um, and that they're organizing and starting this group um, at w what's become Protect Our Coast, New Jersey. And since I first reported that story and today, they've gotten 600,000 signatures uh, on change.org. I think that's a, a number that's l large enough that the White House has to respond. Um, and they're demanding that the federal government take away all these permits for offshore wind farms. Uh, meanwhile, Fox News picked up the story, interviews him and some of the other allies in this group, um, including another fisherman trade group that receives money from um, or, or allies with the fossil fuel industry. And, uh, and so you have this terrible situation where a lot of people believe that offshore wind farms are killing whales when there's zero evidence for it. And it's a common playbook. It's interesting, and it, and it really feeds into the whole dialogue on permitting reform, too, I'm guessing, because in this case, uh, you know, the, the opposition group is actually using the existence of uh, sort of a, a permitting process uh, to potentially halt clean energy progress. Totally. Yeah. And that was actually why I started looking into some of these issues in the first place was all of this debate in the summer over permitting reform. And then, uh, you know, another kind of key topic that I've seen you dive into is around mining um, and sort of the the message that, hey, the clean energy revolution is going to require this insane amount of mining, which, yes, it will require significant amounts of mining in, you know, for for battery metals and whatnot. But I think in in theory, those metals should be infinitely reusable, whereas fossil fuel mining is, you know, non-renewable. You use it once and you have to go mine more. Um, I, I, you had this bar chart uh, on your newsletter on Distilled that was just awesome to look at, you know, showing the the amount of mining required for fossil fuel economy relative to a clean energy economy. Do you, you want to dive into a little bit about that and like where, where you kind of saw this issue creeping up and then how you decided to go uh, dive into that topic? Yeah. So again, this was a, a common argument that I saw in Facebook groups and uh, in some of the right-wing groups that are writing about this. And um, and I saw that people were making the argument that, you know, a lithium mine is really bad for the environment, which I think one thing that needs to be said in this conversation is anytime people are talking about this is that it really is. Like today, lithium mining is really environmentally damaging. There's tons of human rights and indigenous rights violations, and um, it requires a ton of water. And that's true with cobalt and a lot of these minerals. And so I think those issues need to be looked at. And there are people who are working in good faith to really raise awareness for that and work to address that. But when Ted Cruz tweets about this, as he did a few weeks ago, it's a little bit suspect because he doesn't pass any policies or doesn't advocate for anything that do actually solve that problem. He uses it to sort of weaponize against clean energy. And that's often what people do. So they make this argument that your wind turbine uses steel. Well, do you know how steel is made? 70% you know, of it uses coal. Um, so you need your fossil fuels for that or lithium mining uses this much energy. Um, and I think a common thing that 
gets people tripped up or why people will believe that that's true and therefore clean energy is bad is not looking at the life cycle analysis. So a wind turbine does require a lot of energy and some fossil fuels today up front to, to build, but then it creates energy uh, from the wind for 20 years or 25 years. And so when you look at the whole life cycle analysis, something like a wind turbine uses just a tiny fraction of the coal that a coal-fired power plant would use, obviously. Um, and then that's true with just the whole economy. Um, so if we look at some of the data from uh, International Energy Agency, uh, they've shown some estimates of what the total mining requirements will be uh, in order to decarbonize our economy. And they're an order of magnitude lower than our current mining and extraction of fossil fuels. Um, so I think the real takeaway is just that clean energy is, of course, going to be a huge boon for the environment. And um, and there's a ton of benefits. But if you kind of get tripped up looking at the upfront amount of energy or something like that, it's easy to get misled. And I think that does happen to a lot of people in these groups. I mean, I hear the same argument with, you know, looking at the embedded emissions in uh, an EV, right? And, you know, sort of comparing, you know, just the production uh, of an EV, um, but not looking at the life cycle of an EV and an ICE car from the moment they're they're manufactured all the way through their their lifetime, right? In terms of the emissions footprint, one hundred percent, yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's a big issue. What? Um, so you've not only dived into misinformation, uh, you you've dived into how communities have also rallied to push change in policies that are. Um, additive and helpful from a climate perspective. Um, most notably, I think you, you spent a bunch of time looking at Amsterdam and what happened in Amsterdam to move it from a heavily car congested post-war city to, you know, sort of a, a, a beacon of bike-based transport that it is today. Um, what, what did you learn there? Yeah, so I was going really deep down the misinformation rabbit hole and honestly just found myself feeling really depressed and cynical as I was reading through this stuff. And I think uh, something that I've really learned and try to keep mindful of is that things are both bad and good at the same time. You know, it's, it's like there is all this misinformation happening and there's also incredible growth of clean energy and um, popular movements that are growing. And so I'll try to kind of shift between some of that stuff um, and, and see what good is happening and what we can learn. So I went to Amsterdam last summer uh, with my wife and son um, for about a month. And we were just amazed at how livable the city was and how everyone's biking around and there are very few cars in the city and it's quiet and um, just a really an amazing city. And when I got back, I started to learn about um, how they built this. And uh, I saw this image that blew me away, which was a picture in 1970 of a street in Amsterdam. And it looked exactly like LA traffic. It was like tons of cars packed at rush hour and pollution. And I learned that in the 60s and 70s, the cities in the Netherlands like Amsterdam look just like the US. Um, they were building out highways. They were considering filling some of their beautiful canals with concrete to make ring roads around uh, their cities. 
They were knocking down working class neighborhoods, just as we were doing in New York at the time, and building highways and roads, and really just building their society around cars and not people. And at the time, the number of people who were being killed by cars each year was also rising really dramatically. So by 1970, hundreds of children were being killed by cars every year. And um, tragically, a, a journalist uh, lost their child to um, a car accident. And he wrote this article titled, Stop the Kindermord, or translates to uh, Stop Murdering the Children, which is a very provocative title. And um, this co combined with the uh, oil crises uh, that decade, um, and also just the rising cost of building that car infrastructure all culminated into this movement where people organized around this uh, title, Stop the Kindermord, and started going out in the streets and laying down in the streets and um, putting their bikes in the roads and trying to raise awareness for the fact that hundreds of children were being killed, thousands of people were being killed, um, were destroying our environment. And amazingly, they started to really shift the culture and they started to get politicians on board and they built an advocacy group of cyclists and they were able to pass policies over the next few decades that led to bike lane experiments in the 80s and um, some of those they learned and expanded and, and eventually built this massive bike network, uh, the largest in the world. Um, and uh, today, I think a few people uh, or a few children die each year from cars, which is still too many. Um, but they've dropped the the number of car fatalities or or traffic related deaths uh, by I think ninety eight percent. So it's just this incredible story of what individuals can do when they organize and and get together, um, and just shows that the world is the way it is because to some extent we choose for it to be that way, and that a lot of us have agency to change it and and hopefully make it into a cleaner, safer, healthier place. It's fitting that we're having this conversation this week when uh, this week's episode of Ted Lasso was my favorite one of all time, where they went to Amsterdam and, uh, gosh, now I'm forgetting her name, the owner of the team got knocked off a bridge by a bike uh, into the water, but then ended up having a wonderful, you know, sort of romantic evening with the person who rescued her out of the canal. Um, but anyway, uh, sidebar, uh, great episode of Ted Lasso called Sunflowers. We're big fans um, of Ted Lasso, so <laughs> I think we're maybe an episode or two behind. Oh, all right. Well, you'll enjoy it. Uh, it's it's awesome. Um, and and so, you know, all of this, Michael, I mean, the, the question I have for you is like, like you're doing the work that professional journalistic outlets for the most part, aren't doing right now. Um, and you're doing it not with, you know, sort of someone handing you a press release and saying, hey, you know, this is the new thing. This is the, the new story that needs to be covered. You're finding these topics and going and diving in. And like, to me, that is what investigative journalism is about. How do you, as someone who hasn't been trained as a journalist, um, how do you decide when a story is something you should publish or not? And when you feel like you have enough fact to publish or not? I generally kind of find topics by diving into research. It's often academic research and, and pretty wonky. Um, and then the task from there is really trying to find the story and especially people that I can highlight. 
that will make it relatable so that it's not just a bunch of facts and numbers. Um, and so I, I struggle with this, with trying to publish a lot and trying to um, not you know, work on a story for three months, which I've, I've done in the past. Um, I, I try to publish every week. And um, at times I'll, I'll have to say, you know what, I'm not ready on this one. Um, I don't think I have the story um, or I don't think that it's gonna be engaging enough. And that happened recently. Uh, I've been working on a series on um, the environmental damage of large cars and the rise of SUVs. And, and then also what, large uh, electric vehicles will do and the environmental damage from them. And when I was working on part one, I was about ready to publish and just looked at the draft and I realized that um, I didn't feel confident in it and I felt like I was missing some pieces. So um, I went back and uh, I read a whole book on the topic. Uh, I spent like a week really diving deep into the research and I think it made the work much stronger because um, I was able to fill in some gaps. I corrected some things that I had not had a full grasp of um, and was able to really understand the context. And then I think with all of that information was able to distill it down and that's kind of hence the name. Um, something I really try to do is not just give you a lot of facts or not just tell some anecdotes, but try to frame it within a larger mental model or try to frame it within a story so that it sticks. Um, and I think that that often requires like getting a lot of information and then cutting down 80% of it. And do you worry about, you know, libel, like, you know, like potential legal ramifications of things you write? Like, does that, I mean, you're, you're representing yourself. You don't have a company sitting on top of you sort of, you know, representing you, right? Is that, does that, is that something you have to think about? Yeah, I've, uh, I've been trying to get a insurance plan that uh, media organizations have uh, that, covers this type of thing because I'm writing about groups like the Coke donor network or um, these fossil fuel interests that have targeted journalists and they have launched lawsuits. And so I don't really worry about slipping up and you know making a typo and someone comes after me. I do worry a bit about uh, some of the groups I'm writing about coming after me um, and is part of why dialed back a little bit of the antagonism as soon as I started getting tweets uh, sent at me and um, people raising my name on some of these blogs and climate denial forums and stuff like that, that made me uncomfortable. And it definitely something that I didn't like to imagine. And just as I've grown uh, my online presence and have more followers on Twitter, I just get tons of people messaging or, or tweeting at me. Um, so it's not always fun. Um, but it turns out that uh, insurance for that type of thing is very expensive. And uh, so if there's any pro bono lawyers out there that do this type of stuff that um, want to chat or give me advice on, on how to defend myself on that, I'd, I'd love to chat with them. But um, the short answer is I haven't really figured it out yet. Yeah. And, and how do you fund your work in general? I mean, you take small donations through your Substack, I think, uh, for people who want to pay to subscribe. Um, so far, is that, has that been the bulk of, of uh, you know, sort of relying on the goodwill of your readers? Is that, is that sort of what is able to help you pay the bills? Yeah, so um, it's 100% reader funded. Um, I take $5 per month uh, contributions on Substack uh, or $50 per year. And, um, and so I think right now I've got like 7,500 free readers and 350 
paid readers. So it's not enough to uh, afford life in an expensive place uh, like I live in, but it's growing. Um, and uh, and it's it's cool to see this model uh, because when I first started writing, Substack wasn't around and that culture wasn't really around. But I get a lot of subscribers from the Substack network and um, and then of course on Twitter and and then podcasts like this and when larger media outlets cover my work. And you know, when I look at like what content I consume in the climate space, a lot of it is what I would call outsider content, right? It's it's you, it's uh, you know Emily Atkin at Heated, it's um, Kim Zo at, at, at Climate Tech VC. Um, it, it isn't. It's independent journalism. It's it's people who are who care enough and are just doing this on their own. I'm curious why you think this movement has attracted so many people to just do that. We, we talked about Raleigh earlier, who's doing, you know, kind of the equivalent on, on YouTube with, with kind of fun, you know, fun videos, but informative. Um, how do you see this climate sort of creator movement, I guess you could call it, um, continuing to grow? And, and for anyone who's listening, who's, you know, oh, has a little bit of an itch to scratch, but isn't sure how to jump in, like, what advice do you have for people? I think that the thing I've seen is that the ecosystem is growing. And uh, I think it was Raleigh who, as you mentioned, has this amazing YouTube channel, Climate Town, that I think is some of the best stuff out there, like informative, funny, really engaging. And I was talking to him and he said, hey, all boats rise with the tide. Like we lift each other up. And um, I think there's a lot of creators out there who are incredibly generous. Raleigh has been generous with his time uh, talking to me, giving me advice on on YouTube. Emily Atkin at Heated, who you mentioned, was kind enough to reach out to me uh, when I was first getting started and said, hey, how can I elevate the work that you're doing and use my platform to um, help you get started? And uh, I did a, a co-reported story or two of them um, with her, um, which has been really fun to collaborate with people like that because she makes my work so much better. I get to learn so much from her. Um, I think we put out a good product together. So I think that that's something that's just incredibly inspiring right now is that there's more and more people uh, every year. And I think that that will continue as the movement grows and as uh, we do start to grow the amount of clean energy out there and electrification and all this. Um, but in terms of advice that I'd have, I think that my story, I've just always just tried it, like not overthinking it, not worrying about, can I do this? Or, um, you know, is this the right fit? And I've failed so many times. I think this is something that I do respect a lot about Silicon Valley culture. Um, and I gained from living there for a couple of years is this fail fast mentality, um, especially when it's something like, you know, writing a newsletter, not building AI models that might uh, take over the world. Um, but I think fail fast is is a good approach. And so I've, I've tried so many things over the years and launched them and then had to kill them and um, failed sometimes publicly. And I've grown each time from it. So I think just taking that first step and putting yourself out there and writing and just trying to do the work every day for creative work. I think that's the most important thing is like just putting in the hours and publishing um, and, and then trying to learn from other people and kind of having this combination of what this YouTuber I follow in the music world, Andrew Wong describes as 
a balance of taking in some of the more theoretical stuff and kind of the textbook stuff and then making and uh, and practicing some of that. And I think that combination is really important because without some of the theory, in his example, he uses music theory as the example, it's really hard to grow. You can't reach that next level. But if you only read that stuff and never figure out how to implement it, then you're not gonna grow. Um, so I think that combination is something I try to keep in mind all the time. Well, for those of you who you know only know Michael as you know curious founder on Twitter, or maybe are, are subscribed to his newsletter, a, if you aren't subscribed to his newsletter, you should. Uh, and, and B, uh, you should check out his new YouTube channel because, I mean, Michael, you have you have been even leaning further into those creative tendencies, I think, um, and putting together some really compelling uh, short videos with that, that kind of go deeper into some of the stories that we've talked about here. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's um, I, I've started, I started making YouTube videos uh, about climate about four months ago. Um, I had a personal YouTube channel about five years before that and kind of dabbled with it. But I think it's a, a really cool platform. Um, and I think the way I see it, it's an opportunity to reach a group of people who might not be reading the New York Times climate section, or they might not be on Twitter seeing all of the latest climate news. And um, I, I hope that there's people out there that I can reach and educate about the importance of climate action. So that was going to be the last set of questions I was going to ask you. And then I know we've, we've, we've gone a little long here, but um, in terms of who to reach, um, what you uncovered in your reporting on the resistance movement around clean energy was the important people to reach were highly motivated people with time on their hands um, who would go actually take action. And I see the climate movement obviously creating huge like protests in the streets and you know giant uh you know sit-ins and what have you how effective do you think those are relative to these more kind of micro targeted actions and how is that influencing your content strategy yeah i think that the popular movements are essential i think if you look at uh, these two times when Congress was taking up a big climate bill. First, 2008, 2009, when Obama was president with Waxman Markley, uh, this was a cap and trade bill when there really wasn't a broad popular climate movement. Um, there wasn't as big of a coalition, it wasn't as diverse. Uh, and then fast forward to 10 years later, after all of the protests, after all of the activism, all of the work that people have put in to build the movement. and uh, miraculously, one of the only bills that Congress passed in uh, in this latest session was the Inflation Reduction Act uh, on climate. And um, I think that that's just impossible to get that kind of outcome without popular movements. I think you need people in every single congressional district around the country uh, to really care, and you need it to be a high priority issue. And I think that activism is essential to that. Um, so I think we have a lot to really be thankful for, for the environmental movement of the last few decades. And, and we're standing on the shoulders of giants today, I think. Um, and now I think that as we get into this implementation phase, there's really important work to do on educating people who are aware of the impacts of climate change and who are concerned and want to do something about how important it is to advocate for the build out of clean energy or 
advocate for their school district to take some of the money from the EPA that was administered through the Inflation Reduction Act to get some electric school buses and get rid of the dirty diesel cars that are polluting their community. All this stuff really needs to happen at the grassroots level in towns and cities and counties across the country. And I think that that's inspiring because it's not like you're trying to get Joe Manchin to vote on something living right. in California. Like you're not going to do it. It's it's hard. It's easy to become apathetic, but you can get your community to get an electric school bus and you can join groups like climate change makers and figure out how to do that effectively. And so I think that uh, one of the groups I try to reach and a message I try to really communicate is the importance of policy and how it shapes the world that we live in. And then the agency that all of us have as individuals and as a collective in shaping some of that policy. So what I'm hearing you say is, you know, over the last decade or so, the sort of the mass cultural movement about climate and climate action and big climate strikes and all of that has created popular awareness that helped push large scale federal policy through. That needs to continue to happen and continue to be important. But now we also have this policy through and we're at the point in time where dollars are going from federal down to local level. And it's up to each of us to try to get more involved at the local level to push for things that where those dollars can actually impact our own communities. A hundred percent. And there's just so many policies around the country that uh, Congress isn't going to be able to pass. Like you look at land use on building denser communities where people don't have to drive cars as much um, and we don't have to build as many big, dirty EV batteries. Um, that's going to happen at the city level. It's going to happen at the county level, in some cases at the state level. And um, I just think there's a ton of uh, opportunity for impact and, and action at these local levels of government where you can often call up your state senator and get a coffee. Like I've just sent emails to people and said, hey, I'd love to chat with you about this. It, just as an individual, not as the journalist, not as um, somebody who uh, is trying to push anything. I'm just trying to understand their position, understand their background, and then share what I care about. And um, and that's an opportunity that, again, you just don't really have with the U.S. Senate, for example. As important as that uh, that area is, we need to continue to have federal policy. But I think there's just huge opportunity and um, and really just an opportunity to uh, do work that you get to see the results of immediately and build relationships within your community, which is really powerful. Michael, thanks. We've had uh, we've gone all over the place with this conversation, which I knew we would, uh, and I was excited to do so. Um, any final thoughts you have uh, for for me or for for the for the listeners? Just want to express my gratitude to you and the work that you're doing. Um, I joined uh, my climate journey Slack community a couple years ago when I was first starting Carbon Switch and gained a lot from it and met some really great people. Um, so uh, the fact that you guys are all building community and telling these stories and inspiring people is amazing. Uh, and then with uh, Climate Change Makers, which you also started uh, or, or helped start um, with Eliza and the folks there, I'm just incredibly grateful for you doing that work and for continuing to fight for some of these issues. So um, thank you. Well, listen, from from one outsider to another, uh, you know, it takes all of us to just 
understand our own agency and figure out where we can lean into the things that we think we can do and not always know if it's going to work or not, like you said, but jump in and, and go try to make a difference. And hopefully, you know, folks hearing your story today can be inspired to think about where they could do uh, something similar in whatever capacity they can to to lean in and, and uh, be curious and dive in. Yeah, 100%. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Cody. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, let us know that via Twitter at mcjpod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode.